Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today, we welcome Court Thompson. Court, may you please introduce yourself? Uh, hi, my name is Court Thompson. I'm a second year biomedical engineering student at Michigan State University, and I study neural engineering. Thanks for having me on. No problem, Court. But what is neural engineering in the first place? So neural engineering is the practice of taking electronics and implanting them into the human brain to record signals. So there are, there are a bunch of brain cells called neurons that generate and receive electrical input from one another. And these electronics can record those signals and then translate that into a robotic device. So if someone is paralyzed and can't move their arms, you could uh, decode these motor signals from the brain and then control either like a, a robotic arm or a wheelchair or other uh, assistive computer devices. And what area of neural engineering do you focus on? Uh, so I, I focus on the biocompatibility of these implanted electronics. There's a pretty significant issue in neural engineering on what like how does biocompatibility affect the way that these devices perform after they've been implanted into the brain, and also how do these devices influence the biology of the brain. So it turns out that when you um, stab something into the brain, like an electrode array, if, if anyone's listening, look up what a Michigan probe is. Um, they're sold by a company called NeuroNexus. They're basically just like a long spear. And, and as it turns out, the brain really reacts poorly to having something like that essentially stabbed into it. And so there's this big issue of, of scarring and immune response and a lot of things that we suspect are going on at the genetic level or like the transcriptional level that um, that's what I explore. Um, so I want to look at these devices being implanted into the brain, how they affect the biology, and how can we better design these devices to allow them to better integrate into the brain. And how do you do that? So on a, on a day-to-day basis, we do a lot of uh, surgical implantation of, of a variety of different devices into, um, into rats. And then we allow the rats to live their best life up until a terminal time point that is uh, somewhat comparable to a, a long-term implantation in a, uh, a human subject. Um, and then after the time point, we look at the brain tissue and we evaluate it for cell densities. So how many neurons, those are the electrical cells in the brain, how many glia, the supportive cells in the brain, they, they support the neurons. Um, and then we also look at the genetic changes in these cells. So we look at um, whether or not the neurons are becoming more or less electrically excitable, like whether or not they're becoming more or less active as a result of these devices being implanted, and also whether or not there are different, whether or not these genes or like these, these proteins that are being up or down regulated, whether or not they are potential targets for therapeutics, and whether or not we can avoid a severe immune reaction and we can avoid that scar tissue just by changing the components like the size and the shape and the overall architecture of an implanted device. All right, and then how do you choose which implantation method to use for these rats? 
I would imagine that they're going to be different between a person and a rat due to the just sheer size difference in the brains in the first place. So how does that translate across species, and how do you miniaturize the implantations yourselves? So generally, actually, you don't use a different device. Um, the, the field is relatively new. Um, it really only started in the 60s, maybe a little bit before. Um, but there are two main devices that have been around since the beginning of the field. They kind of founded the whole field of neural engineering and what people were doing. And that's the Michigan Array that I mentioned earlier and something called the Utah Array. And the Utah Array is a 10 by 10 array of not the same geometry, but it's 100 of these different uh, like Michigan-shaped devices. They're not quite uh, planar. There's something called a microneedle. So it's, a, it's an array of 100 needles that you implant into the brain. And for up until... I think the last 10 years, the Utah Array and the Michigan Array have been the standards. And then only recently, different researchers and uh, players in the private industry have started to actually diversify the number of electrode arrays that are out there. So it's it's all still very preliminary, a lot of these devices. Um, but there there is no there is no choice right now for the most part, in whether or not you're going to put an electro, a different electrode array into a rat or a mouse or a human, it's right now, it's just most of them haven't been in humans. Really, only the Utah array has been in humans. Danny brought up a good point, though. Their sizes are so much different between a rat and a human. How big is the Michigan array anyway? Because I'm imagining like a big spear going into someone's head versus a microneedle. Kind of, yes. There is a... Relatively, the, the Michigan array is much larger in a mouse brain or a rat brain than it is in a human brain. The Michigan array is about, um, I believe, about 100 to 120 micrometers in width. And then they're about 15, 20 micrometers in thickness. So that's not huge. But in terms of uh, cell bodies... Um, a neuronal cell body being, let's say, on average, about 20 micrometers or microns. These devices are very large, and especially the one of the one of the more detrimental parts of these devices and these designs is when they're big like this. Like any device, when you when you stick it into the brain, you're going to damage a ton of tissue. And so, the larger the device, the more tissue this is going to damage. Um, I wouldn't say it changes too much between humans and rodents because the devices are the same size and the cell bodies more or less are going to be the same size as well. So a neuron, a neuron in a rat is going to be the same size as a neuron in a human. The difference is quantity. Are you only looking at the brain after the termination or are you looking at how the rat acts afterwards? Like, are you trying to look at uh, rats that are paralyzed and then see if it can actually like fix their, uh, their paralysis, or are you just looking at the brain? Um, so for my work, I just look at the brain. So there are, there are the, the main thing that you can do post-implantation with a functional device before you sacrifice the animal and then evaluate the histology and, and the transcriptome of the tissue is to take recordings, like live recordings from the animal. So once this device is implanted into the brain at specific time points, like let's say... Uh, one day, one week, and six weeks out, 
you can you can anesthetize the animal and then hook them up to a amplifier, something called a TDT system, where you can actually look at the electrical signals in the extracellular space, and you can evaluate not necessarily if the animal is recovering, but the main issue that we work with in biocompatibility is how long can you actually record for? So the main issue with this this inflammation and scar tissue is this scar tissue will coat the device and it will reduce the the effectiveness of the electrical recordings. So it increases resistance. It, it, it insulates the device from the electrical signals. And so what we generally look at is, is the device still capable of recording at chronic time points? And, and usually the answer is no. The, the recordings tend to, the, the, the amount of activity you can pick up generally decreases as time goes on, especially in these larger devices. How are these devices implanted in the first place? Do you have to perform a surgery where you split open the skull of the animal and then you put them in there with like microdermal needles? Or is there a mesh that you overlay on the top of the brain itself that is uh, composed of all of those different uh, Michigan arrays that you had mentioned earlier? So the surgeries are pretty standard. Um, there's something called um, uh, a stereotaxic frame, which this is not unique to rats. Like if, if humans have brain surgery, there's a human stereotaxic frame. It's just a device that holds the animal still, um, especially in terms of brain surgery, it'll hold the head still. Um, so we, 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 we anesthetize the animal and we place them in the stereotaxic frame. And then we generally will just drill a small hole in the skull and then the stereotaxic frame actually has a arm that you can that you can insert the device into and then lower it down precisely so it's kind of like a micro manipulator so it's a it's a it's a device that you can control with um, a series of knobs that will precisely and slowly implant the device you can also use um, nowadays like pneumatic insertion is becoming popular or has been popular and there are companies like um, Neuralink that is run by Elon Musk, they unveiled a uh, their own brand new ro like robotic insertion method. Um, but generally in academia, it's usually just a simple stereotaxic frame with either a manual or pneumatic insertion method. Can you please define what is a pneumatic insertion method? Um, so in a lot of larger animals like primates and and even humans, when when something like a Utah array that is a lot of microneedles lined up next to each other, you need more force generally to insert it cleanly. And so a pneumatic device is, um, it uses air pressure. So if it's, if you think of like a pneumatic piston, um, just something that it releases a lot of force at once, and it will just very rapidly press the device into the cortical tissue. These arrays sound really small, but I'm curious now, what material is used to make these arrays in the first place and the reason why I ask is because there's some people out there that might be listening and are thinking, oh, are they just putting metal inside my brain? There could be a, a worry about metal poisoning. How, what kind of materials do they make the arrays out of? Um, generally, uh, these devices are made out of FDA-approved materials. Um, so even if there are different metals that are being used to fabricate the device, they're generally insulated with a biocompatible, like a quote-unquote biocompatible or biosafe uh, material like perylene or uh, polyamide, some kind of safe polymer. 
Um, generally, the bulk material is, especially in the, the Michigan and Utah array, those are silicon. So, so their silicon is very easily workable. Um, uh, it's very easy to work with in photolithography and, and methods like that, especially when you're trying to like mass fabricate devices that are on the scale of the micron. So like the Michigan array, which is like a hundred microns or so, and the Utah array, which is a literally an array of a hundred micron devices that and then the whole Utah ray as a as a single piece is about a two micron by two micron square with a bed of microwires on one side of it. Um, the devices are getting a lot smaller. People are working with a lot of different materials. Um, some of the really popular materials now are uh, a type of SU8 photoresist and polyimid. And then people are using new techniques like e-beam lithography to fabricate these devices, e-beam being electron beam. Regardless, these devices are being fabricated at, um, in some cases, sub-micron scales. So if we're talking in terms of the nanometer and um, even down to sub-cellular levels, so um, devices with dimensions that are less than 20 microns. And, can, and then can you define like how... I don't think our audience really understands how small a micron is. Is there something you can compare it to to give them an idea? Um, so if we're talking about the terms of like a single micron or some of the smaller devices on the market, um, like Neuralink's sewing thread, um, uh, I would say imagine something on the scale of the human hair. Like how thin the human hair is? Yes. So like some of these, especially some people are using carbon microwires. Um, the Michigan probe is slightly bigger. Um, I wouldn't say it's like, it's not as big as a thumbtack would be, but it's, it's, it's like comparing a thumbtack to the human hair. If I had to make a rapid comparison. Thanks. Now I'm kind of wondering here, what array do you particularly look at? Or are you working on developing an array that is more biocompatible? Um, my lab generally looks at the Michigan array, which is the standard for academic research. There's there's a lot of uh, clinical research being done with the Utah Array, but in terms of academia and, and rodent research, the Michigan Array is generally the standard, and I think the Michigan Array probably has um, also a, a fair body of literature behind it, and it's, it's pretty well characterized in, in how that device reacts long-term in the human body. Um, I personally do want to fabricate a device, but that's a little bit further down the road. Um, and, and I have some preliminary studies going on right now that I think will help me determine how I want to fabricate that device. But that's, that's a topic for another time, I think. I'm kind of surprised that people prefer to use the Michigan array over the Utah array, considering that the Michigan array is more sphere-like and it's larger versus the Utah array, which are like micro needles. Do you know why people prefer to use that? I wouldn't say that people prefer to use the Utah Array or the Michigan Array over the Utah Array. Um, the Utah Array is, the individual microneedles are probably a, a little bit smaller than the Michigan Array, but the Utah Array is, if you took 100 Michigan probes and then stacked them side by side and then inserted those into the brain. So the Utah Array is actually a much larger footprint than just a single Michigan probe. 
the the traditional Michigan probe is a single shank. They there are there are different. Or you can make an array of Michigan probes, but for our purposes, we just want to look at the standard Michigan probe and how that device behaves. And then when we actually use um, a, a different material or a different device, like something made out of polyamide that's a little bit thinner or smaller, we always compare it back to Michigan the Michigan probe as our control because the Michigan probe is so ubiquitously used in the field. Neural engineering is not a new topic. It's been out for decades. Now, I'm wondering, from your opinion, Court, where do you think neural engineering is going now with the future? Um, I think I think neural engineering and and the practice of making these devices and implanting them in the human brain, I think it's going to go really far. Um, companies like Facebook are already trying to get in on this. Um, Elon Musk and his company Neuralink just had a huge press conference about their technology and their robotic implantation and their unique electrode arrays. And they want to start human trials next year. So I think that these devices, as they become more sophisticated and hopefully as they become more biocompatible, that you could have a really confluent interface, like a seamless interface between man and machine, to, to put it simply, and that you could use this technology to treat paralysis, treat depression, treat epilepsy, especially Parkinson's that's already being treated. I think that I think that the the options are almost limitless if we can really master this technology. That's very interesting. So then what is Neuralink trying to accomplish with their implantation method? Um so they just had a big press conference about this. Um right now they're still very focused on treating disease. Um, so they want to implant a lot of different devices. They want to implant hundreds of human hair-sized devices into the brain. And they want to, one, be able to control exterior devices, but they, they, want, to, they, want, to, they want to be able to treat Parkinson's, epilepsy, seizures, depression, all of the things that can currently be treated with neural engineering technologies. But they, their main claim that they eventually want to do is they want to interface the human brain with artificial intelligence. And they want to create something that's a little bit more seamless than someone just using Google on the computer, if that makes sense. It's, it's kind of nebulous, but that's the way they described it. I know in a variety of interviews, Elon Musk says it's like having a, a wizard hat on, for your brain or something like that. But, so they want, they want you to be able to access artificial intelligence as a part of yourself, which is a little bit weird to think about, but that's what they claim that their end goal is. Sounds like a movie. Yeah, I agree. It almost ha it has a very sci-fi feel to it. Sci-files, if you will. Court, what do you believe the future of neural engineering looks like? So I think the future is really bright, and I think it's going to be very cool. I think that even... If the weirdest things happen, if Neuralink manages to connect the human brain to AI, I think at the very least, once we master this technology, I think that uh, people who have had to have amputations for various reasons, I think that people with neurodegenerative diseases will be able to move again. If, if, if someone is paralyzed, like at the waist down, I think people will be able to move again through the use of an exoskeleton or a brain-controlled wheelchair. I think if this has already been done, that amputees will be able to get a robotic limb that they can control with their brain. Um, and I think, I think neurological or what's 
as, as psychological disorders become more neurological, I think a lot of those will also be able to be treated as well, things like depression and, and epilepsy. So I think the future is really bright. There's just a little bit more work that we need to do before these devices can become a normal, permanent medical procedure. And what motivated you in the first place to pursue this research? Um, back in uh, 2008 and 2010, I think, uh, there was something called the BrainGate Initiative, where the whole premise was, can you record signals from the brain and can you control a robotic device? So there's a, there's a video online, there's actually a few videos now, where a, a woman who has tetraplegia, so she's completely paralyzed from the neck down, um, there's a video of her in a wheelchair with a device implanted in her brain, and you can see it, but there's a big robotic arm next to her. And in the video, the, like she controls this giant robotic arm, and she grabs a cup of coffee, and she drinks out of it using just her brain. And so that was what really sparked my passion for this field. Um, and, and I think, and I feel like every year, every few days, I'm constantly reminded why this is so exciting. Um, in 2018, I went to Society for Neuroscience and I met a man named Ian Burkhart, who he is also paralyzed from the neck down. And yet I re he reached out and shook my hand with, with his hand. Um, because he has an electrode array implanted in his brain and he has a sleeve of electrodes that he can use to control his own paralyzed arm. And so he can play Guitar Hero now, more or less. There are videos of him doing that. So I think this is really remarkable and I think the future is really bright. Well, thanks for taking the time to meet with us this morning, Cor. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Um, if you guys have any questions or if any of the listeners have any questions, um, I think my contact info is probably listed in the, the summary for this clip. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles. <laughs>